Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers podcast, number 15, The Origins of Modern Art. So this is a little bit different of a topic. This is the first time we will be discussing uh, art on this podcast. And um, the origins of modern art, just with my background reading on it, it is incredibly interesting. And I want to talk about that today. The sources for this episode are uh, two books. One, Coddington, Modern Art, A Very Short in- Introduction, and Arneson and Mansfield, The History of Modern Art. So what is modern art? Well, modern art is the artistic work that is pro- that was produced uh, roughly from the 1860s to the 1970s that throws aside traditions of the past in spirit of experimentation. So the traditions of the old Renaissance paintings of the past were to depict life as it was and create the most accurate depiction of life as possible. So you see the uh, three-dimensional kind of nature of it, the perfect colors, the the brightness, the shading, everything is really represents real life. Now with modern art, this changed to uh, more of an experimentation. And when you look at paintings, Uh, everyone knows the Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh, where clearly he's not painting a real scene. You can see evidence of his brushwork and the stars in the sky, they're they're swirls, and it is not like it would look like in real life. And this is what modern art really uh, is. And, And van Gogh's work and other works that we'll talk about similar to his really define what modern art is. Um, so really what it is, is it's really about the artist's subjective vision of reality uh, rather than what objective reality really is, as I said. And in the Renaissance era, uh, there was the so the 18th century valorization of rationality and the faith in reason exhibited by philosophies such as Voltaire and Diderot. They undergirded the, the penchant for archaeological accuracy, pictorial clarity, and even moral virtue. So in the Renaissance, it was as though uh, reason that the social and natural order could be understood. So rigorous academic training with years of practice and emulation was what offered the most reliable guide to young painters. It wasn't that um, young painters should seek to express themselves, but rather emulate the old masters of the past and learn how to depict real life as it was. Make sure the picture is clear, make sure it's archeologically accurate, and even add uh, a tone of moral virtue in there. This was the nature of Renaissance paintings before modern art started to emerge. Uh, So really what the Renaissance paintings that you see of, uh, you might see like uh, the Sistine Chapel or, I believe there's a painting called uh, The Creation of Man or different paintings where they tried to represent real life as it really was. But in the Enlightenment, this kind of changed. Whereas um, Voltaire and Diderot kind of uh, talked about uh, clarity and and faith in reason and objectivity, philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau argued that the natural and unpolluted human emotions were really what offered the surest means of understanding truth. For Rousseau, only by feeling something could one truly understand truth. It's about subjective expression now, once the Enlightenment kind of rolled around, and the Enlightenment turned toward the emotional sides of life. So for Rousseau, truth is sought by turning inward, and subjective experiences are the surest markers of genius, rather than objective interpretations of the world. 
these ideas that place an importance on subjective expression are what nourish the roots of modern uh, expression and modernism and avant-gardism of creating what you want to express. Like Van Gogh's Starry Night, this is his mood and what he was feeling rather than what that Starry Night actually may have looked like that night um, or what the Starry Night uh, was meant to look like. The artist's unique vision and imagination is now unconstrained by academic practice and freed from the pictorial conventions of objective representation that had been obeyed since the Renaissance, you guys. So this is kind of what um, the ideas the ideas started to change and started to evolve into valuing subjective expression over objective representation. And that really takes us uh, to the core of what modern art is. Modern art really rejected this real-life depiction of academic-style painting. Uh, there was sketchy, sketchy brushwork, excuse me, an acknowledgement of the medium's flatness, the two-dimensional nature of the canvas you're painting on, rather than trying to make the picture look three-dimensional as they tried to do in the Renaissance. Uh, it was incredibly iconoclastic, so it really clashed with what um, the established traditions were, and there was a refusal to offer any obvious meaning. Everything became open to interpretation. So there was... Um, there was no um, clear, virtuous um, theme depicted in every single painting. It was now, I'm going to paint this abstract work, and you guys can interpret, and critics can interpret what it really means. The adherence to visual reality became less important than the symbolic or expressive function, you could say. So artists like Van Gogh and Gauguin, for instance, used rich rich and saturated colors not for visual realism but to convey directly by their mood and their feeling so what well, the techniques that uh, for instance van gogh used in the starry night um and i bring up the starry night because this is one of the most famous uh, modern art paintings ever and i know most of you guys will recognize it um uh, but with with the starry night, the brushwork and the saturated colors on there um, were not meant to convey visual realism. There was not some color theory set in place to make it look as real as possible. It was the color that was used was simply used by Van Gogh to to convey uh, mood and to convey feeling. So. Also in this modern era, judgments about artistic quality, they were no longer as dependent as they once were on requirements of manual dexterity. It wasn't about the, necessarily the skill of the painter to make that person look so real. The most important thing became creativity, and that creativity uh, was subjective to the artist, and it became about the art, artist's idea. And this is what the historian Thierry de Duve says. He says, painting as a craft was replaced by painting as an idea. This is the nature of the modern art movement, you guys. And this is kind of uh, defining what what really modern art was and what the sentiment was in the Enlightenment era that uh, ended up kind of creating this idea. And we're going to go more into depth about um, really what took us to uh, modern art. What what made artists go from portray, portraying real life f to portraying their subjective feelings. Well, there was a real role of economic changes in the development of modern art. So economic changes in Western Europe, notably the 17th century expansion of mercantilism, which depended on 
unfavorable international trade balances and sales of manufactured goods, and the 18th century development of capitalism, which encouraged the further spread of manufacturing, contributed to the ascendance of the bourgeoisie, which is a high class of citizens with newly acquired economic strength and a taste for the fashions and arts. During the rise of Western Europe and economic changes that benefited a lot of society, there become there became almost a, and really this is where the the term bougie comes from. I just realized um, bougie comes from this bourgeoisie, and please confirm if that's true. But um, it must be because this is where this bougie attitude started to develop as people got richer. They they developed some kind of a taste for the arts and and for fashion and things like this. Um, due to these economic changes in Western Europe, notably mercantilism and capitalism. At this stage, collectors now sought to fill their homes with beautiful things, including artworks, of course, and and beginning uh, the 18th century, there was a proliferation of works with themes suited to a bourgeois interior. Um, to be modern was to have qualities that Western societies currently valued, vitality, openness to the new, and responsiveness or relevance to the present moment, for instance. And this is what stimulated um, one of the landmark paintings in modern art. It was this exact market, in fact, that propelled James Abbott McNeil to paint Nocturne in black and gold. Um, which he hoped to appeal to the bourgeoisie. So this sentiment and this <laughs> newfound um, bougie taste from the bourgeoisie stimulated uh, or propelled these artists to create art that would appeal to this class. Um, and I'll put this painting uh, by McNeil, Nocturne in Black and Gold, on the screen. And what you can see is you see evidence of brushwork, you see perhaps even a little bit of splatter, and you you don't see him trying to paint real life. And this is totally um, new in the day. This uh, Let me just confirm uh, exactly what year this was painted in, just so we get a better idea of, um, of uh, how early this was done. This was painted... Uh, in 18 from 1872 to 1877 so this is one of the landmark works in modern art and it, it stems from this uh, these economic changes in in western europe so you see in in this uh, in this picture and if you're and if you're listening on the podcast um the the photo will be on the website and all of the supplementary materials will be on there and i'll also post it up to the instagram page as well um so you can just see all the photos associated with this episode in one place. You can also Google it if you don't want to go onto the website. Um, but what you see is that he's not making an effort to depict real life uh, or to hide his brushwork in any way. So Whistler's statement with this painting was that art is first and foremost the manifestation of an individual's emotional and intellectual will. The notion that an artwork is fundamentally the expression of a particular artist's thoughts or desires seems obvious today. But this was not the case until the rise of modern art. So when we think of painting now, we think of it as expression. Now we think of it as um, letting your uh, your inner emotions uh, be conveyed to the world. But this is not the way it was until the rise of modern art, you guys. Um, how did this uh, sentiment grow? And how did uh, modern art continue to develop in the early days? Well, um, 
There was a serious growing of the modernist movement when it moved across the Atlantic from Paris to New York, and it was in 1929 when the Museum of Modern Art, MoMA, was founded in New York, largely with Rockefeller money, and this was the first indicator of the broadening of the modern art sentiment, and the steady growth in MoMA's cultural assets, prestige, and influence over the subsequent century registered the gradual assimilation of modern art into the leisure and entertainment industries of Western society. So once it came to the United States, this is when it really started to grow, and when uh, there was sort of a confirmation of this artistic movement. Um, now, what is interesting is that even though um, this economic uh, increase and this um, sentiment of the day seemed to uh, spur on modern artists, it also had a different impact on modern artists. And even though in the early days of uh, McNeil painting Nocturne in black and gold, how he tried to directly appeal to the bourgeoisie, some modern artists actually tried to go counter to this bourgeoisie sentiment. Uh, or this this um, idea of appealing to the bourgeoisie. They tried to go counter to this. So despite modern art becoming more easily accessible to, to, due to these newfound social dynamics, artists sought escape from these conventions through rejection of bourgeois society. The very economic influences which originally led McNeil to paint Nocturne eventually led to painters creating works that went counter to this establishment, also shaping the development of modern art. So what was really happening was that um, also the development of capitalism in modern uh, Western societies over the course of the 1800s and the steady encroachment of commercial values upon all aspects of culture kind of became suffocating to a lot of modern artists. And this eventually provoked some of the, these artists to seek escape from these conventions of the very establishment in which those values were initially inscribed. So these bourgeoisie uh, values, which initially spurred on and essentially facilitated the modern art movement, actually ended up also facilitating it in a new way by artists going counter to that. Painters found their existence as members of a materialistic status-seeking bourgeoisie very problematic at this time. So their distaste for such values not only isolated them from existing social and artistic institutions, but also generated a deeply felt sense of psychic alienation. This double alienation, it has been argued, was the wellspring of avant-gardism in modern art. Um... The critic and art historian Benjamin Buclo in the mid-1980s, long after, of course, modern art had been developed, finally um, could place a definition on what this avant-garde uh, sentiment of modern art really was, and it was a struggle over the definition of cultural meaning, the discovery and representation of new audiences, and the development of new strategies to counteract and develop resistance against the tendency of the ideological apparatuses of the industry to occupy and to control all practices and all spaces of representation. So, what Buclo is kind of saying is that artists started to kind of challenge what is deemed good art in in high class museums and among art critics. They kind of started to go against this um, 
this sentiment of, of what good good art good art was from the bourgeoisie um you look at different movements in modern art um notably the data movement and the surrealist movement artists of the international data movement sought to mock outrage or even vilify bourgeois society um and surrealists did a similar thing they also directly challenged this suffocating rationality of bourgeois society in almost incomprehensible uh in the almost incomprehensible strangeness of their works. So their works were almost a direct uh, response to this suffocating uh, over-rationality in bourgeois society. So in a way, you guys, the very attitudes and cultural practices that allowed for the proliferation of modern art are what inspired the art as a direct response to these cultural practices, which is very interesting how um, what initially shaped modern art um, still continued to shape modern art later, but now it was due to modern artists going against these, um, these cultural practices and things like this. Um, we're going to talk about Gustave Courbet, who is um, one of the pioneers of modern art. And Courbet, Courbet's realism um, served as an early rebellion against these established forces of academicism in art and conservatism in society. He was one of the first artists to really go be that first counterculture artist. So Courbet understood the painting to be a two-dimensional world of stretched canvas, and that the artist's function was simply to define this world. Rather than trying to pretend that this was supposed to look like some three-dimensional landscape, he said he uh, just painted as if it was a two-dimensional landscape, and it's just up to the artist to create within that. Um, so at a time when fellow artists were painting fanciful scenes of rural life, stories drawn from mythology, and celebrations of aristocratic society, Courbet painted figures partaking in the same life as they did in the real world, and they were all related to his direct experience. He, he spurred on this new realism, is what it was, and that was no longer about moralistic high art anymore. He just depicted real life as it was, and even just painted people he knew from his small town or his small village. So the second image, if you're watching on YouTube, it's going to go up on the screen now. It's called The Burial at Ornans, painted between 1849 and 1850. So you see how he was even before McNeil's Nocturne. And um, if you're on the podcast, it is on the website, or you can also Google it as well. Um, so what you see in Burial at Ornans uh, it's very significant in the history of modern painting because there's some kind of a denial of illusionistic depth. Uh, so the three-dimensional nature, he, he paints it as if it's a 2D landscape. Um, it has an apparent lack of formal composition. Uh, you can see the brushwork and not everything is uh, perfectly made out. And there's an approach to subject matter so radical there that it was seen as an insult to everything for which the venerable French Academy stood. So you can see this kind of counterculture happening in modern art. So his depiction of the subject's dis disheveled clothing, for instance, um, full of marks, they, they totally opposed convention where everything had to be pure and uh, morally high, uh, high, and um, it he just painted simple realism as it was. So even though Courbet paints a burial in a small town, the painting's ambitious size also conforms to the large dimensions of paintings reserved for only the noblest events from the past. Usually large paintings were meant for these noble events or um, the creation of Adam. And let me just make sure... Uh, 
I got that right because, um, yeah, the creation of Adam by Michelangelo, um, because this is kind of a classic Renaissance painting and equally incredible, but um, you can see that these large paintings are meant for such major events, literally the creation of man or things like this, or at least noble scenes. But Courbet, his representation of ordinary residents um, are not supposed to be on such a large, large surface. Um, this did not coincide with established Parisian norms for the depiction of rural folk. It was supposed to be put on small little paintings. Um, and they're not even noble peasants that Courbet painted. Um, they're not pretty, happy maids of traditional academic painting either. They're just highly individualized, mostly unattractive, and aggressively real people that are just from Courbet's town, totally against the establishment of modern art. And this is how ra how radical uh, you see these influencers are. They really have to create something that totally goes against tradition that is very iconoclastic this lack of compositional hierarchy and pictorial rhetoric really outraged french critics and um but this is the nature of an influencer he's really going to ruffle some feathers and he's going to do something that's totally against um what has been laid out for him and uh edouard manet he did something similar for the development of modern art, and he's another pioneer that we're going to talk about a little bit here. So painting up until Manes Day, as I mentioned, was based on illusionism. So this meant that the paint and bristle marks were supposed to be disguised as much as possible, as we've kind of talked about. Um, as a pioneer of modernism, though, Manet really abolished these principles. We're going to do a, another little analysis into a painting, Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe, 1863 by Edouard Manet. It's going up on the screen on YouTube, and uh, you can check it out on the website if you're listening to the podcast. So what you see here, so you see Manet's use of broad lines and thick edges. They're very noticeable in the, in the folds of the woman's abdomen and neck and in the fingers of her companion. Evidence of his brush on the medium uh, was an effect which was historically revolting, as clear depiction of what the eye saw was most acclaimed at the time. You see the Renaissance paintings, it's about painting exactly um, what it would be like in real life, but Manet didn't do this. Again, he did a similar thing to Courbet with the size of his painting. So smaller canvases were meant for still lifes, portraits, and landscapes. Manet's choice to paint Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe on a large canvas showed his determination um, to kind of rattle the basic premises of established art. And this painting in a broader sense, it really mocks both the old masters and the audience and the bourgeois audience and the high art audience and the critics who uh, supposedly are connoisseurs of, of high art. So we're going to read a little bit of an analysis from, or at least read some notes from Arneson and Mansfield specifically, because they really um, analyzed this painting incredibly well. Uh, so the woman's gaze in the painting, uh, it's directed out of the picture and at the viewer, and this ruptures the illusion of the scene she is in and addresses the subjectivity of the viewer, leaving the viewer uncertain about what the picture really means. So there's already a sort of a um, asking questions of the, the high art connoisseur. The bird at the top center of the picture, it's very small, uh, and I hope you guys can see it if you are uh, uh, looking at the picture on your phones, but it's at the top center of the picture. Is the man using his hands while talking? 
Or is he instead holding his finger out for the bird to perch on, asking more questions of the audience? So this alternative of uh, raising his finger to allow the bird to perch on it, even though he's hardly even looking at the bird and the bird is so far away, although the, this alternative is perhaps ridiculous, as Arneson and um, uh, Mansfield say, uh, it's enough to heighten the sense that the painting mocks both old masters and its audience. Further uh, kind of doing this mocking of, of, of old masters and its audience. So there's an absence of convincing modeling of the figures. The nude woman in particular seems inappropriately flat and bright, almost as if in a flash photograph. Uh, there are inconsistencies of scale and perspective that exist between the foreground group and the woman in the background as well. So these aspects really call attention to the two-dimensional materiality of the painted service, kind of like Courbet did, further going against established convention that sought to make pictures appear three-dimensional. So Manek clearly, uh, with his inconsistencies of scale and perspective, he shows this is just a two-dimensional landscape, and he's acknowledging that with, uh, with his modern art. So um, for a mid-19th century audience, this would have signified incompetence on Manet's part of all of this um, uh, calling into clear attention the two-dimensionality of the medium and his brushstrokes and his inconsistencies of scale and perspective. This would have signified incompetence on Manet's part in the 1800s. Yet troublingly for such an audience, there's sufficient evidence of competence as well in the painting and creativity to unsettle this assumption that Mena could possibly be incompetent and to heighten still uh, this sense of mockery for the establishment. So he's really confusing the viewer with this painting and this is the nature of modern art, really asking questions of the viewer and leaving so much more up to interpretation. So in sum, you guys, Mena's uh, broad, abrupt handling of paint and his treatment of the figures as silhouettes rather than carefully modeled volumes, uh, collapsed space, they flattened forms, and asserted the nature of the canvas as a two-dimensional surface. Mena's subjects, as well as the sketchiness of technique, infuriated the professional critics of the time. So these Mena and Courbet are two um, pioneers of modern art, really, for their anti-establishment ways that, as I mentioned, started to burgeon um, with this new uh, bourgeois class and and artists started to be recalcitrant against um the the high class societies and and their um perceptions of modern art the final thing we're going to talk about is the role of photography in the development of modern art we couldn't talk about the origins of modern art without um without talking about how photography influenced it. So if you think about why the Renaissance painters tried to make things look exactly real, was partly because there was no real photography technology that uh, could take an exact picture of what was happening. It had to be painted. So the paintings, the purpose was to make things look like a photograph. Um, but artists, uh, so artists took the scrupulous fidelity of the photographic images um, as a reason to work imaginatively or conceptually and thus liberate their art from the requirement of pictorial verisimilitude. All this to say, um, and I believe that's from Arneson and Mansfield as well, and this is just the idea that once photography came into play, the daguerreotypes um, 
that were created well artists said okay well that's the purpose of photographs so the purpose of art then can be liberated from this pictorial verisimilitude and we don't need it doesn't need to look exactly like a picture anymore that's what a uh, the daguerreotype is for the daguerreotype was like the early photograph so that's what the photograph is for art is now for um not necessarily representing real life it's for maybe representing emotion and feeling the modern artist now had intent to portray the subject according to his or her unique perspective rather than portraying the subject as it existed in the real world a photograph already does that but the modern artist what they uh, are supposed to do now is to portray the subject according to their own unique perspective and to really create something. It's about the idea, no longer about the objective representation. A painting no longer needed to be a window onto the world because it was now known unapologetically to be a constructed image of it. So it's almost like in modern art, they essentially started to acknowledge really what was the case about painting. It's painted on the 2D surface, so we're going to make the painting look like it's two-dimensional. It's a painting. It's not a photograph. So we're not going to, we're not going to try to make it look like a photograph. We're unapologetically, um, not that we're a painting and we're never going to be as accurate as an exact constructive constructed image of reality so why try to be like one this is the sentiment in modern art you guys and for the final analysis really in this episode uh, we're gonna do it on van gogh's the starry night from 1889 that um, many are so familiar with and came to be one of the most uh, famous paintings the world has ever seen uh, and that's gonna be on the screen and uh, you can check that out on the website or on google if you'd like so if this is from uh, Arneson and Mansfield. Scholars have tried to explain the content of the painting through literature, astronomy, and religion. Although their studies have shed light on Van Gogh's interests, none have tapped a definitive source that accounts for the astonishing impact of this painting, which today ranks among the most famous works of art ever made. The defining quality of Van Gogh's paintings is that as much as they depart from observed reality, they arise from a touch as meticulous as though the artist were painting and exactly copying what he was observing before his very eyes. So even though, um, and apparently Van Gogh's The Starry Night was not him actually looking at A Starry Night, it was just straight from his imagination. But even though it was straight from his imagination, it looked as though he was meticulously and painfully painting and exactly copying what he was feeling and what he was observing before his very eyes. It's so incredible, the brush strokes you see on there. So that really defines what modern art is, you guys. Modern art is the subjective expression, not the depiction of objective reality. It's about conveying your mood and your feelings rather than painting things that uh, look like they really do in the real world. So that's the episode, The Origins of Modern Art. Um, thank you guys for listening and watching uh, this episode. And uh, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes for sure. This is... Um, just uh, mind-blowing stuff about how these uh, incredibly influential artists such as Courbet, Manet, Van Gogh and uh, influence modern art and how they went against the establishment and how that very establishment initially uh, promoted people to paint things that would uh, look good to the establishment and um, there's such an incredible um, 
sequence of things that occurred in the origins of modern art, but I hope I summed it up for you guys and uh, gave some kind of an in-depth analysis into uh, how modern art began. Um, if you like this episode, you guys, please share it with at least one person who is interested in modern art um, or even art in general. Um, you can please uh, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. So whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else. If you are on Apple Podcasts, you guys, please leave a star rating or review. And like the video on YouTube if you enjoyed the in-depth analysis of modern art this Monday morning, you guys. You can share your own thoughts as well and your own ideas from the YouTube comments section or from the Connect page on the website. You can also do that through Instagram at Insightful Thinkers Media or Twitter at Team ITM. And if you do happen to be on the website... Um, please feel free to check out the blog posts or poems um, that are on there. And uh, one of the blog posts is the supplementary materials for this podcast episode, all of the paintings that I mentioned in this episode. So it's all in one place and you guys can just scroll through that as you listen. Um, uh, to make it a little bit easier than Googling each and every one. Also, if you want to join the monthly ITP video conference call, you guys, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Um, that's where we come together monthly to have insightful discussions. But in the end, whatever you guys do to support, just listening and watching will always be more than enough. And uh, it makes me happy that uh, people are tuned in and people are um, excited, as excited about in-depth analysis as I am, because uh, that's what we're doing here at the Insightful Thinkers Podcast and Insightful Thinkers Media. So thank you guys for tuning in again to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast this Monday morning. And we'll be back next Monday morning for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody.